Okay, so these are touchy subjects we're on. Uh, divorce and oaths is the next one, um, part five of our Son on the Mount series. Um, the principle that Jesus uh, teaches uh, fundamentally as we look at all of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is that the law is, is not to be used to enable easy ways out. Uh, it's not to work around it. In this case, divorce and oaths uh, to not make easy divorce or deceptive oaths. That's vows, uh, in other words, or promises to some degree, although I'll clear that up, what, what that really means. Jesus here raises the standards of righteousness above legalism in the whole, uh, certainly, of these next few laws that we'll look at. Um, and while God may have certainly allowed divorce, uh, it doesn't mean he necessarily approves of it. And we'll get into the deeper reason why that is the case. Uh, rather than seeing divorce as a, as a sort of loophole, Jesus indicates that we need to see marriages as sacred unions. And uh, we'll get on to that as well and how that relates bigger and a bigger picture to God and the Trinity. When Jesus speaks about swearing oaths, he's not necessarily referring to serious formal commitments like marriage. He's not necessarily referring to that or even uh, as if in a courtroom. Uh, but what he's, he's doing is condemning those who use language of, of oaths to disguise dishonest intentions. So the, the bigger picture here is to reflect that marriage is a, a smaller, less perfect representation uh, of the perfect union and the purity found in the Trinity, in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, oaths are a reflection of God's perfect, unwavering character in being trustworthy and good all the time. And it should remind us to stand on integrity and truth. And that alone, for a Christian who believes in Jesus, Jesus should be enough and, and help us to reflect this Christ-like character. I will say, uh, as we approach this, um, when you're preaching the word, uh, we, we don't come in firstly to use the word to condemn people. We don't use it politically uh, in order to, to, to give a, a message to our own necessary political beliefs or political positions. Uh, we speak the word as it is written, as it is shown, and then we try through the Holy Spirit to interpret what Jesus was saying or is saying uh, as he speaks even now through the Holy Spirit. So there is an offence in certainly these subjects that will cause people who have either been through divorce who have either been affected by divorce, but also help those who have not. So what we're doing is to try and help people who have been through it and to understand what Jesus means by it when he's saying only divorce for this particular reason, and we'll look at that. But then it's to help people who haven't been through it and say, well, that can't be used to condemn people because they have been through it. This world is a horrible, sinful place. And we are sinful people trying to do our best. The only way we can do our utmost best is to believe in Jesus and trust in him. So we're not trying to go, ha ha, I've got this one. Have you noticed this before? I've seen this before. People tend to take biblical issues. They stand on them and, and have a go at other people because they haven't had to deal with it themselves. That's not the church this is. Everyone is welcome to Jesus. Everyone who comes, seeks forgiveness of sin, 
accepts Jesus as Lord is welcome. I have to give that caveat because these things are, can get politically loaded even in the church. And so I hope, I hope I've done a good service to God in doing this message today. Secondly, I hope it serves in whatever way God through the Holy Spirit will do that for you and with you. Our application as we look at this is how we value the union of the Trinity, God's promises towards those who are offered salvation, those who accept it also. It should remind us of an unconditional sacrificial love from God that is made perfect in Christ through his death, his resurrection promised long ago and delivered, of course. So let's have a look at the verses. What is said? So we're going to follow the same pattern. We look at what is said. We, we really do a, a sort of, I suppose, a commentary in a little way just to understand what's being said. Uh, and then we move to what he means, what we, through the Holy Spirit and how you read the Bible, what we think Jesus is saying, using the text, using the Old Testament, New Testament, and understanding how that works. And then we move to application, whatever that uh, will be. So let's look at our first verse here, 31. It says, Matthew 5, 31 says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, the interpretation of this law meant that people understood it to be any reason that divorce could happen. Uh, they understood that for any reason they could do it. There's even an understanding, and there's two schools of thought here, by the way, of rabbis. One school of thought says that it's very conservative and very strict, and you have to abide by the letter even of, well, of, of the law as, as such. There's some issues with that if you start getting into pharisaical uh, interpretation. But then there's another school of thought that's much more liberal, much more relaxed and, and allows probably what we're seeing here in Jesus' time, which was an over-relaxation of uh, divorce. But there's even uh, some uh, rabbi teaching, apparently, that uh, even burning the breakfast or dinner was sufficient reason to get divorced. I mean, that's how far it got. That's how, that's how far they went in saying, I just feel like, I mean, clearly burning breakfast and dinner is not a good reason to get a divorce. So what's in the heart? The heart is, I just don't want to be with this person anymore. I want to go to the next person. I want, I've, I've eyes for someone else. So what they started to do was use reasoning, silly reasoning, to make an excuse for a divorce. And so it was accepted because in that time, uh, men issued the certificate of divorce to women. And so we're in much more control. Um, but what it ended up being was a license to encourage uh, husbands to virtually divorce on the basis of a simply change of feeling, almost, uh, towards being married to a particular person. And so Jesus has come to correct this. 32 says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we can then understand the reason why Jesus then says uh, this is that it's not the correct application or interpretation of the law that you have been running with. Sexual immorality basically meant fornication with another person, effectively adultery, which is why we learned about adultery last week. But this would have been controversial to the crowd. The culture of the time for Jews and Gentiles would have been completely against what Jesus was saying. 
they've been used to a long time of relaxation of this law or a, 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 a slack interpretation of it. Uh, but Barclay here quotes, here is helpful. He says, in Greece, we see a whole social system based on relationships outside marriage. We see that these relationships were accepted as natural and normal and not in the least blameworthy. So they were just able to have relationships outside of marriage and just do what they like because actually they could just choose whenever they like to just go, I don't want to be married to that person anymore. I'm just going to do what I like. So you get the, the picture and the context much more of why Jesus has to come and bring a correction. Paul does the same in the Corinthians church we were talking about in Bible study. Uh, Paul does the same. He has to bring a, a correction, a quite extreme correction to the Corinthian church just to try and get them to come back uh, to following God and what he wants for that church. But here we'll see that we see that Roman culture then came to adopt this very attitude towards marriage. It's very lax. In law, only men were permitted uh, to issue or enact a divorce. And that's why we see Jesus focus the point on men in particular, as they had the power. So they should also obviously take responsibility for that power and apply it fairly. In New Testament times, women were not allowed to testify in court. Actually, before uh, Jesus' time, before New Testament time, I would say, uh, we see that actually it was much more fair uh, for women in that time. It actually became harder in New Testament times for women to be, uh, uh, I suppose, independent in a sense. Uh, yes, they might have wanted to get married, but also things were kind of taken away from them. In effect, what it did was it categorized them with Gentiles, with minors, deaf mutes and undesirables, such as gamblers, uh, people with mental problems, um, pigeon racers. I mean, that's the level which they pit women down because they didn't, they didn't respect those people. And so they, they kind of put them down to, well, they're not worth anything. They can't have anything. So they denied that privilege. Even, even a woman, as you read in the historical context, a woman of stature, someone who had uh, a business, someone who ran a business even, uh, could not engage in commerce could not engage in business in these New Testament times and it'd rarely be seen outside of the home. Only a woman who was struggling economically, who was forced to become the, the breadwinner of the family, could engage in, in their own small trade. If a woman was ever in the street, she was to be heavily veiled, was prohibited from conversing with men. So you get the context here. I think when we understand the context, Jesus is coming to bring some fairness back here. Women were being extremely badly mistreated, terribly mistreated by men who did not want to step up with their responsibility to God as providers, as people who were meant to be protecting them. And we'll find that, as we see that in the verses, that God will say this. He'll say to them, uh, that you uh, have effectively thrown them aside. You've, you've done evil to them by doing this. So it starts to give a truer picture of how Jesus' words actually came to rebuke husbands who would liberally apply this get out of a marriage clause, as it were. Uh, and it's always, always, most certainly at the detriment of the wife. Uh, verse 33 says, again, you've heard 
that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Jesus states here it was, that it was interpreted that when God used, uh, when used God's name, when people use God's name as a token to set a promise, it should not be broken. It should not be uh, put aside. You should not try and get out of it. Once you put God's name in there, you must do what you promised. It would have been, to some degree, contractually uh, binding as well. When they swear those to other people, uh, they were expected to carry through on their promise. So it would have been considered quite dangerous to make such a promise and then to go back on it. People created loopholes, of course, because they didn't want to have to abide by their own promises because they might have not thought about what they've promised to somebody. So they'd swear by other things. Places cross my heart. I swear on my mother's life. These are legal ways to get out of an oath. So if you don't, if you don't promise on God, and you, you promise on a lower level, you can kind of get out of it. This is, they're creating loopholes to get out of making promises to each other. Gave them a way out of the oath, uh, and they, should, they didn't have to deliver on the promise they made. This allowed, and this is where it focuses on, and we'll look at, is deception. So as people devalued oaths or promises, so they would have to add these extra qualifiers because their character alone was no longer enough to be trustworthy. So, you know, it's never decreasing the circle. Once you start having to say, I promise that I will do this, I promise, honestly, honestly, I promise I will do it. The more you keep doing that, the less trustworthy you are because you have to keep putting more qualifiers in. Promise on my mother's life, I promise on my father's life, and so on and so on. Verse 34 says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne at 35, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Jesus says that a person should be known by their integrity and character, and so should not swear by anything. 36 and 37 says, do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Uh, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says that you cannot swear even on yourself as you have no control over the colour of your hair. And we all know that, don't we? But it emphasises how changeable we are. So he's using, and we'll get into this, he's using the fact that our hair changes as a way to say we're so changeable that we just decide, I'm not going to fulfill that promise anymore. I'm not going to do what I said. And I'm going to justify it to myself. So he says, a Christian's yes or no should be strong enough to stand on its own merit. Anything else is either purposeful deception or we're deceiving ourselves. Either way, it comes from a source of sinfulness uh, of evil. Mm. So, Let's have a look at what it means. What does this all mean? Let's try and break this down. 
and see. Unfortunately, uh, what we obviously see today is that, um, uh, much like then, by the way, not a lot, I would say, has changed. Uh, divorce is common in society today. It's unfortunate um, because there is always a fallout. There's always people who get hurt. Even the two people involved will be hurt. There's repercussions on people involved, family connected, even friends connected with that. It said that the uh, people say, by the way, that the average divorce rate is 50%. Found out this to be a lie. Uh, it's not actually 50%. Um, what, uh, I'll just give you a quick sort of fact check. 50% is what was predicted uh, many years ago. What they kept saying then was they turned it into fact and said it's 50% because someone said many years ago it's going to be 50% and someone kept running with it. Actually, the divorce rate, certainly in England and Wales, is 33.3%. Uh, so much lower, uh, although obviously divorce anyway is, is always a, a, a t you know, hard thing to go through. Uh, and that's based on all marriages between uh, 1964 and 2019. So we have to acknowledge uh, a reality that many marital relationships that have broken down beyond repair are not sustainable. There is just the way that is. We're, we're, we're people who are broken. And so sometimes brokenness causes that effect. It has effect on people and it, it breaks up. Marriages, they break down sometimes beyond repair, not sustainable. And so actually it might bring more pain to all people involved if, if people stayed together. It's, there's a reality about this because we need to balance what, just because Jesus said, and I, I don't mean it like, that's, like that, <laughs> that might sound, if other things are not, we, we looked at last week and we said, because Jesus said, don't lie, don't get angry, let's take that one, doesn't mean we don't get angry. We still get angry. There's a reality about this. Jesus is not pointing to the specific here and saying we're going to be able to keep this. There's going to be 0% divorce. It's, it's not going to work because we're broken people. Broken sinfulness cannot be excluded just because we're looking at divorce today. Sinfulness remains. Brokenness remains. So we're messy. So it's certainly not an easy message to hear in our culture today when we uh, read what Jesus is saying, much like it was hard to hear back then. But there is context as to why Jesus has said what he said. Uh, first of all, we need to remember that the Pharisees effectively, as I said, abused the law to such an extent that they created no-fault divorces. What's interesting is that on the 6th of April this year, in this country, there was a change in the law. Uh, and it was, it was in regards to no-fault divorces. And from that time, it means it's now possible to process no-fault divorces. And that's where either party doesn't need to prove who is at fault. They don't need to prove that the other one is at fault. They can just basically sign a bit of paper. Even to go a bit further, it's all online. It's all digital. You can be, basically have a divorce online. There's a reality, though, isn't there? We're, we're kind of broken, right? And so we do things like this where we create these, well, there's no fault. Well, there's fault, and it's, it is both people. There's two people involved. But let's not hide about that, and let's not use it to try and bash people with. Because actually, if people see the brokenness in that, isn't there a chance to see Jesus in it? Isn't there a chance that people could come and say, yeah, I've messed up my life. I've, I've kind of just, we, we've both done it. We've both not, we've not stayed together. We've not, we've not really 
it's just not worked. It's not worked out. But actually, maybe that's a recognition of brokenness. Maybe it's a bit bigger than just sticking to legalism. In fact, I know it's more than sticking to legalism. What I believe Jesus is not saying, let me be clear, is that mentally abusive, physically abusive, or sexually abusive marriages are okay and should continue. He's not saying that. I'm telling you now, he values every single human being on this planet. And yes, of course he wants them to come to him, and of course he wants them to be saved. That's what's at the core of this. Before he returns, we want people to come and profess Jesus. Not worry about whether they're observing certain laws, because the law is that we can't fulfill the law. And we're going to get to that too. We don't want to try and impress Jesus by being really good like the rich man. He says, I've, I've done everything. I've, I've obeyed every single law. Jesus still gets him, doesn't he? And he says, yeah, but what about if you let go of all your wealth and gave it away? Oh, and he's upset and he goes away upset, sad. Even that example alone tells you it's not just about keeping legal laws. We're not doing legalism here. What Jesus is saying is how the marriage is valued by both parties from the outset. In particular, the source of that which devalues it. I would also make clear that the only way marriage can even begin to be valued as God values union is to be a Christian who believes that God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see what I mean? And here's why I'm talking about it can't turn into political game. We can't take issues like divorce and start throwing the particular certain things at people who are not Christian because they're not Christian. The first thing they need to do is know that Jesus loves them. And when they know Jesus loves them, there is a chance that they might turn to him. And when they turn to him, their life will be changed. And what they do and when they behave and their outward behavior will change also. Do you see? There's no point tinkering with the outside first and then going, oh, by the way, Jesus. To know the depth of our sin, you've got to know Jesus first. Our life changes forever until we reach eternity. So it can't work just by having high moral values. For if that were the case, then there's a danger of becoming Pharisaic ourselves. We just start claiming to live by the law, yet choose another law. And, oh, don't talk about that one. I'm not very good at that. We'll talk about this one that I have nothing to do with. I've no experience in. Because I've, I've led a good life. I've had a good marriage. I'm having a good marriage. We're very good at that as people, aren't we? We're very good at taking certain things that we're good at and trying to not talk about the things we're not so good at. Matthew 19. And he, he expands on this. Matthew 19, 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Oh, Pharisees. They asked, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Built into this statement is a principle that marriage, defined as being between a man and a woman, is two people becoming one. Understand this, church. Two people with their own ideas, their own plans, their own dreams of their life, coming together as one and finding agreement. That's not easy. We are individuals. And so how do you find this oneness? How do you get this oneness idea? If we each have our own plans, we each have our own ideas about how we should live and how we should live in a marriage and how we should behave in a marriage, how does, how does two people become one? Becoming one means that both must have a high view of each other as men and women that are made in the image of God. The first, and this is not done perfectly by any means whatsoever. The first is, God made that person. God made me. That the baseline respect is of God's creation. Before anything else, the baseline is God created man and woman. That alone should be enough reason to, to find ways to be respectful, to, to make sure you can become one. If either is held in low respect, then effectively the glory to God is lessened, as each do, don't recognize that each were made in the high view of God and in his image. You see what I mean? So if our view first should be of God, so this is what I'm saying. If we want this idea of marriage, then it's actually to be a Christian first, to understand everything it means to be a Christian. And so what I do is I understand not always, that the other person, Dawn, is made in God's image. Makes sense? So when I start with that, instead of going, oh, I'm just here, I'm just present, it kind of, you have to like be respectful all the time. Certainly to God, first and foremost, absolutely. His creation, absolutely. So then we hold to, uh, as much as we can, people our partners in high regard Matthew 19 verse 7 to 9 he goes on why then they asked did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away Jesus replied Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery Jesus's words in regard to the hard heart are the most crucial here. What we do when we look through verses of the Bible, and especially when Jesus is, is talking, is we look for what, what is, what's the root of what he's saying? What is at the root of what he's saying? So we don't say, well, we just take the bit about anyone who divorces wife except for sexual immorality, that's it. We take the context and we say, well, what's at the root of that? Maybe it's a hard heart. Jesus is saying, in this case, a hard heart. That's why that had to be done. The reason why Moses permitted divorce is because of hard hearts. Uh, Malachi 2.16, the man who hates and divorces his wife says, the Lord, the God of Israel, 
as violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So that's what I was saying earlier. This is the impact on men most certainly. You do violence. I mean, that's, that's intense language. Violence to the one he should protect. I'm going to say this. I think you only understand that if you become a Christian. I think you only understand that at whatever you've come from, you get that when you become a Christian. You understand that and you go, yeah, because I understand that God created each and every person. And so they're loved by God. They are his. Those who believe and trust in him, they are his. You see, even as Jesus speaks of the right reasons for divorce, what lies beneath it is still a hard heart that doesn't want to grow up, doesn't want to take responsibility. It wants to resist God and embrace the world and its ways. Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. The issue, I believe, that might be causing some issues today in how we value marriage is that maybe because there's, as there is a numerous TV, junk TV programs about it, is that maybe we value the marriage ceremony higher than what the commitment means. There are documentaries, TV shows, whatever you want to call them, on the ceremony of marriage. Mix that in with overhyping the heightened emotions on the day with a spectacle of a ceremony, then live up to the worldly standard of marriage, and I believe the value of marriage could be lost or eroded. I've heard, uh, just it, not people say it directly, but I've heard about the, the wedding day and how people treat it. It's, it's, it's not wrong to value the wedding day. It's not wrong to value the ceremony. It's a great, joyous day. What I've heard in some cases is people refer back to it saying it's not the same. I had that day and every other day after that has not been the same as that day. Yeah, that's right. That's how it works. You're having a party. I don't understand how you cannot, how you can see this any other way. We're having a party. We're heightened. We're having some celebration. That's great. But don't take that as every day of your life. You wake up in the morning, you come downstairs, breakfast is done. Then there's a party and everyone's drinking. All your friends come around every day, every single day, and there's a big meal. And Do you realize that is the only way you can replicate your wedding day? Is to have a wedding day every day. It's weird that's what people think it kind of should happen. I don't, I don't feel as... Why? So, you know, I feel now a bit, you know. Yeah, marriage is something to work at. But it's for Christians, it's a, it's a joyful celebration. 
of union. It's a representation of his trinity. But you see, this is the bigger, this is bigger than the issue of divorce. Bigger. Embracing the world, not wanting to honour the other person made in God's image, is in fact not honouring God in what he has created. These points on adultery and divorce point to bigger problems within each and every person. Sin. Not accepting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour means we can live to desire and whims of emotions. Let me be clear, there's a reason, as I stated earlier, for couples to divorce. There might be reasons. There are reasons there when there is abuse of, of many sorts. There are absolutely right reasons. More so, I need to stress that just because a couple might be Christian, it doesn't mean they also stay together. So Christians still don't get away with it because they've got the badge. Because they say, I'm a Christian. So they did another survey, of course, and they said they would try to understand what's the divorce rate in Christians. Because, you know, that's what the world does. It wants to compare and go, ah, you're not very good at it either. So they found that roughly about the same. A bit less, 25, maybe 20% divorces in Christian marriages. But then you've got to look at another problem. This person goes up to someone on the street, calls them on the phone for this poll, and says, I'm looking for Christians, and I want to ask this question of them. Uh, have you been divorced or whatever? What's the definition of a Christian? Do you know what most people thought it was? You go to church. You go to church on a Sunday and that's it. That was the definition that they found people were operating with. So not, not really belief, not even probably accepting Jesus actually, but just the fact they turned up on the Sunday. People turn up to church in high churches for many reasons other than God. <laughs> Take their kids to a school. They want to get them into a good Church of England school or a good Catholic school. They're required to attend certain weeks. I'm just saying here that the definition is not set right. So effectively, all they're asking really are people that they asked before. And so is it any surprise that the rate is roughly about the same? Probably not. But to avoid this piousness, we accept that Christians are not perfect because they believe in Jesus. There's things that happen, and that's, that's the way things happen. So, so maybe what, what's, what's the way we should look at this? If as two individuals, they're feeding themselves with the word, understanding what God has had for us in the beginning when we look at Adam and Eve, then, was, then I would say that the marriage is built on a better foundation when they join as one. I'm, I'm not saying it's perfect because God's word is perfect, but the way we use it is not perfect. As we each understand that we ourselves, that we ourselves have been wonderfully made in the image of God, so then we can learn that the other person is too. 
it's a real shame uh, that people come to whatever church and more more high churches uh, and they're looking for comfort and they might have just been through a divorce i've heard terrible things of the way people have been treated because they've just come out of a divorce by churches it's not on church it's just not on let me be clear that when you come to jesus there is a mission that we're on to change but continually trying to be more like him every day but to suddenly have someone walk through the door in bits in a mess and then to somehow exclude them because they've gone against god's command I've got to say, where's Jesus? Here's an opportunity for people to know. Jesus can, has paid the price for sin. He's forgiven sin. And so when people say, I believe in you, I trust in you, Jesus, just like any other issue in each of our lives, all that stuff, the wrong stuff we did, the bad stuff we've We've done. Do you know what he does? He says, you're forgiven. It is not good enough that we stand on certain topics, certain subjects and go, well, we forgive you for this, but just not quite for that. The, the image of the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, puts everything into insignificance. Once he did it, it was done. The law has been fulfilled. It has been paid. It is finished. Let's move on to oaths, to promises. Not so heavy, I hope. It's a good way that the book said that it bubbles in this order, by the way. We've got divorce, we've got heaviness, and then we've got, okay. But by the way, it... It's still a bit heavy. I'll just warn you now. So I suppose uh, alongside that principle of valuing marriage, of what God does, what God has given us to reflect his uh, triune nature, we'll look at oaths, oaths in a similar way. But it's not bad language. It's not a reference to serious or formal promises, as I said, and it's not about wedding vows either. What these verses really speak into is the integrity of our character as Christians. And Paul was often found, by the way, to have made oaths in God's name. It's fine to make vows in God's name. It's, it's, just, the, it's just when and, and who we say it to and why we're doing it. So let me give you some examples. Romans 1, verse 9. Bearing in mind, this is after Jesus had said this, don't make oaths. And then Paul went and made some oaths, okay? Romans 1 verse 9, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. There's a, a vow. So what he's saying is, when I say I pray for you, I'm saying to God, God is my witness in praying for you. So you know, sometimes we say, oh, I'll pray for you, we might forget. Be careful what you say when you're saying to someone, I'm praying for you. Be very careful. Certainly don't use God's name if you're thinking, actually I'm not, but I will try. Anyway, another issue. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. 
that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. God is my witness. Another statement, another oath. I assure you in 1 Galatians 1.20 that before God that what I am writing you is no lie. I think this is an easy one. Paul is writing from the Spirit. He's writing everything that Jesus told him through the Holy Spirit. He's writing everything that he knows about Jesus and how he came to fulfill the law. He's writing no lie because this forms part of God's scripture. Isn't that amazing? Maybe he didn't know so much that that was going to do that, but it, it, it does nonetheless. And so these oaths, oaths, these vows, should we say, are not a problem. As Paul was not in the practice of abusing them. He wasn't abusing them or he wasn't using them to deceive people. So none of these statements are to deceive the people he's writing to. In fact, knowing just how committed to Christ Paul was, these oaths that he made only served to highlight just how much integrity uh, he had as a believer in Jesus. It reflects his integrity. He's a character you can trust, a person who can carry these oaths and make them uh, true, that he can carry them out right to the end. But these promises are to be used carefully, sparingly, specifically. Jesus reminds us that God is part of every oath, every promise we make. If you swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or even your head, you swear by God and your oath must be honoured. That was, uh, I didn't have the scripture there, but that's what he says. That's what he said in, uh, I think it was Old Testament. Uh, it wasn't Numbers, and I now can't remember. I haven't written the reference down. Um, you see the weight of it, though, once you say, I swear by God. I swear by God. This is very, in its initial stages when they used it, it was treated with respect, with reverence. When people made these statements, Numbers 30, verse 2, when a man makes a vow to the Lord, takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Paul's use of oaths were actually to serve the people he was writing to and to help them to know that his message was important and was worthy to be heeded, to be heard, to be read. I remember when I was much younger, people would say things, to justify what they said was true. Uh, some similar, actually, to uh, what is said, what was referenced here in the, what they might have said in the Old Testament or in the Pharisees might have said. Uh, I heard people say, cross my heart and hope to die. You must have heard of that one before. I mean, that's incredibly extreme. But as kids, you don't really realise what you're saying. Cross my heart and hope to die. Really? And as I read that people are doing that in these biblical times, I think it's really a reinforcement that God knows the extent we might go to to hide our deception, even today. I think I remember another one, called, uh, which was similar to uh, On My Mother's Life, uh, which, was, which was something that when people said, no, nah, it didn't really happen. So I swear on my mum's life, you know, when you're a kid, that doesn't really mean anything a lot when you're just saying words. And yet as an adult, you look back and go, how many times did I swear on my mum's life about things? About silly things as well in the playground, right? In school and silliness. Nah, I swear on my mum's life. Like it was said a lot. 
you're going, I don't know what school you went to. I went to a school where a lot of people lied, all right? That's what happened. The school where lots of people lied. It wasn't a great area. It was quite de deprived in terms of social mobility and all that stuff. It, it wasn't great. And so people lied to get their way to deceive other people to get money out of them and all this sort of stuff. It was going on all the time. So, of course, it just became really easy to go in my mum's life and on my life, cross my heart and hope to die, blah, 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 blah. All sorts of other terrible things uh, to make people, to deceive people into trusting uh, another person. But what Jesus speaks into is the problem of people using these oaths to deceive people. What Christ is forbidding here is this flippant, profane or careless use of oaths in everyday speech. And so in that culture, when Jesus is speaking, these oaths were, were often employed for deceptive purposes to make the person being victimized believe, believe that the truth was being told. So the Jews would swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their own heads, not by God. And they did that, hoping to avoid divine judgment for their life. They just switched it over. They said, well, I swear on something else. God can't judge me for that because I've not sworn on his name. Oh, it's weird, all the little like legalism, the legal work that has been done here. And so the Pharisees got to work on these prohibitions. They tried to restrict them. They shifted people's attention away from the vow itself and the need to keep it to a form of legalism. So not to be held to it, but God warned against lacking integrity in what we say and what we mean. And so the warning was already there, actually, because these are Old Testament um, verses, Proverbs. 10 verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Proverbs 19 verse 1, better the poor whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Integrity is what Jesus points to. Jesus teaches that a vow is binding irrespective of what legal loophole we might come up with. The real implication of the law is that we must keep our promises and be people of integrity. And when that happens, as Jesus says, we don't need oaths. We don't need to swear by something anymore because we're trustworthy, because we're showing that we're trustworthy. We, how do we show that we deliver on the thing we promised? And when we don't, be honest about it. Don't try and wriggle out of it. How many times have I can think of my life so far? How many times have I had to try and uh, just come up and say, look, I didn't do what I said I was going to do. But when that happens, when we learn to keep our promises and we say uh, yes or no, we don't need those to prove that we'll keep our word or even have a fallback just in case we want to get out of it. Jesus emphasizes teaching that honest people do not need to resort to oaths. Our answer should be honest and open. Integrity requires it. 2 Corinthians 8.21 For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the law, but also in the eyes of man. Our word should be our bond. Whatever we say, we must stick by it. The Bible says that God swore by himself because there was no greater. And we really cannot swear even by ourselves because we are not our own. 
we've been bought and paid for. So we have nothing to base our oath on. But everything we are and everything we hope to be is by the grace of God. So how does this apply? How does it apply to us? How can this help us today uh, as we look to the um, non-aging word of the Bible? It, it never changes and is always applicable. When it comes to the union of marriage, not everyone, as you can read in Matthew 19, is destined in God's plan to be married, by the way. So when we think about divorce, what we need to think about is this perfect, permanent union found in the Trinity. What marriage is, is a reflection of the Trinity. However imperfect, we might carry that out. For single people, it's no less. It's a principle of remaining true and faithful to that which is faithful to itself. God in the Trinity. So in understanding our inability to carry out relationships, relationships perfectly, and that we can hold and cultivate unhealthy attitudes towards one another, it should reveal that we need Jesus and his work of justification in the law. It should always point back to Jesus and what he has done. What it shouldn't do is make you more legalistic. When Jesus died and rose again, he fulfilled the law, and the old law is now complete. Now we don't live up to that because we can't, so we live to Jesus, because he can Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the language, it might sound, you, you know, all these sort of laws and how Jesus is, is really narrowing them down so people understand what they were there for. But ultimately what that's pointing to is salvation found in Jesus, that only he could provide a way for the law to be justified, for it to be fulfilled. What we understand is that grace provides the means for us to be forgiven. But the law, even under Jesus, does not allow permissiveness because of that grace. It's only because of Jesus and his perfect ability to fulfill the law that we've been forgiven and can live in his grace. Paul is very clear about that. It doesn't mean you can just go and do what you want. I said this last week, don't do what you want. But we honour Jesus, we honour God, because we now recognise that we need him as our Lord and Saviour. So I do everything I can to honour him and his name so that others will also come to him. As people embrace Jesus and choose him, what we do is change our perception of how we are to live to God and how we are created in his image individually. But also understand that God has called Others to live and are created for his purpose as well. The most, the most sin, let me say this, the most sinful person, let me be clear, I just quoted that in case you can only hear me. The most sinful person can do great things for the kingdom. Paul was the worst. He went around killing Christians. He went around killing Jesus' followers. This man was turned around, saw the light, saw the truth. The most heinous person who's committed the most heinous crime 
can be on this amazing mission for God. They just trust and believe in him. Ask for forgiveness of their sin. So in that, coming back to marriage, divorce, there's, there's hope that if uh, the building, in the building block of marriage, rather than the excitement, the fanfare and the ceremony of just one day, then maybe divorce would be avoided. If these building blocks are what make the foundation to begin with, I'm not saying that's a solution. I'm saying marriage, marriage is, is what God has ordained. And so we want to do it well. We want to live well. Sometimes it doesn't happen. So we seek God and we come back to him and say, Lord, I tried. It's, it's not going to work. As for oaths, promises, vows, whatever you want to call them, we need to be reminded of the promises made and the foreshadowing of Christ that was to come. The ultimate example of integrity can be found in our God. As Christians, our integrity therefore matters. And let me be clear, it doesn't mean you say yes to everything because you're a Christian. Okay? It's not about doing good, as in being a do-gooder. Be clear with people. If it's not going to happen, say no. They're serving in that. We're serving people. Don't do it because it feels like the thing you should do. Do it because that's what you know you should do. And if you know you shouldn't do it, tell people you're not going to do it. It's very difficult in this world. I see, I think even more so than when I was growing up, uh, when I was younger, that people just say yes, at just a whim. Just, yeah, I'll do that. I, look, I even say it sometimes. And I realize I've got about 100 other things to do. And then I can't, my yes is no longer yes. It's, well, I uh, don't know. Sort of, maybe. No, I can't do it. And we're quite quick to want to please people. People pleasers, aren't we? Want to please people. Be careful. Be careful. Take a minute to think. You're serving someone regardless of whether you do something or don't do something. There is something in it that's serving them. Certainly our integrity will serve people. So it doesn't mean you say yes to everything because you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you say no to everything under some misguided idea that you're saying it how it is. But we are to be clear. Not so that we're just trustworthy people, but when it comes to our witness of the reason for the hope we have in Jesus, in that ultimately that it can be trusted and tested to be true, that's why it matters. That's why integrity matters. Not because of the integrity in the thing, in the acts that you do. But ultimately, when it comes to the opportunity to share Jesus, that integrity is going to count for a lot. Honest, truthful. I'm going to tell you the truth. I trust you because you, you're honest with me. You're direct with me. Even if I don't like it sometimes. For when our yes is yes and our no is no, we don't need to swear by anything else anymore. So let me leave you with this verse and then we'll worship. 1 Peter 2 verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Visits us, by the way, is an understatement. 
but I love it anyway. Live such good lives among the pagans, not because you look good and you'll get plaudits for it, but we want to do that because we want to serve Jesus. We want to honour him. And they'll see that. And our hope is that they will come to Jesus and glorify him. Let's pray.